Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. I said, surely you will revere me, accept instruction. So her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her. But they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to the prey. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out to them my indignation. All my burning anger for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. For then I will give to the people's purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones will bring my offerings. In that day, you will feel no shame because of all of your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud and exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Well, good morning. Did you know Zephaniah was in your Bible? Oh, okay, good, good, good. I like that. So if you didn't catch, turn to Matthew, Matthew's first book of the New Testament, and go back. You say four books? Three. There you go. You'll find the little book of Zephaniah. Right before we get to Zephaniah, just a, a review of last week, if you were here or even if you, if you weren't here, we looked at the prophet Nahum. He's also in your Bible. Nahum brought a message, God's message, as all the prophets do. The message was to Judah, but the message was about Assyria Nahum's predicting that in just a few years, God would destroy the evil power of Assyria because of their constant rebellion, their sin, their cruelty. Nahum's imagined as a watchman on the wall calling these, this powerful nation and the city of Nineveh to prepare for battle, for siege, but in reality, God would defeat them no matter what. There's no hope for their nation at this juncture. And you see Nahum also records some passages directly to Judah within, and there's some speech about, how, about the reasons for God's judgment on Assyria, and it's based upon the character of God, God's holy character. So out of chapter one, we looked at, we spent some time with the fact that God is indeed a God of wrath, of vengeance toward his enemies. That wrath is a necessary part of who he is, his character. God is a God of just wrath, and yet he is slow. God is slow to anger. He's very patient. You know, as human beings, it's easy for us to quickly pass judgment on another, to get angry at the culture, to feel rage or offense or, you know, any number of things, but God is not like that. He is very slow to wrath, and, and that's on purpose. Nahum reminds us that God will not leave the sinner unpunished. So are we guilty? Yes. Are we enemies of God? No. In other words, we're not going to have to take that punishment if you're in Christ. Praise God. He's designed 
a beautiful plan for our atonement. The necessary wrath against sin is applied to Christ on the cross in our place. That separation, that brutal death that he underwent was on our behalf. So in that case, if you are in Christ, you can be reconciled to God. You're a friend of God instead of an enemy of God. The scripture says that. You're his child. He's not waiting to drop the hammer on you or even put a check by your name. You're in his family. So let's come to Nahum this morning and I just want to ask the Lord to bless our time as we, or to Zephaniah, excuse me, as we look at this little prophet of Zephaniah. Father, thank you for the chance to be together here this morning for the time of worship and we come to your word. We want to worship you as we look at Zephaniah just a little bit, spend some time with some concepts here and as we then come to communion, as we remember and celebrate what you did for us in taking the wrath, taking the necessary wrath upon yourself instead of putting it on us for eternity. Bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so if you have that timeline, we're not going to add a date to it, I just wanted to bring it up. We haven't been adding the dates of the prophets to the timeline unless you wanted to, of course you could, but um, the last date that we put on the timeline should have been seven or 640 B.C. That would, that's the reign of Josiah, King Josiah in Judah in the south. And it's during these times, that date um, of, of Josiah the king, that Zephaniah is prophesying. Zephaniah is in the midst of Judah, and he's warning them of the coming judgment of God. He uses that phrase, the day of the Lord, quite often, and that's coming, says Zephaniah. So we're going to give Zephaniah the date of about 635 B.C. And Zephaniah's path would have crossed probably with Jeremiah and Habakkuk, who come after him, but not too far after him. And we're, we'll look at those two here real soon. Zephaniah probably had a great influence on good King Josiah. He started, if you remember, quite young as a king and... It was about 622 B.C., so just only a few years after we, the date we've given for Zephaniah beginning his ministry, that the law of the Lord was found. It was lost. It was buried in the rubble or in some dusty corner in the temple of the Lord. Somebody found it, and under Josiah, a great reform started in Judah. Now, it wasn't a reform that took over the whole land, but it did bring some back to the Lord. It was temporary, but it was a revival. And this was during the days of Zephaniah. Maybe he had a great hand in that. We don't know that for sure. But it is important, however, to realize just before King Josiah was a bad guy by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the worst, if not the worst, king that Judah ever had. He reigned for 55 years. His influence changed the outlook of the land and probably Judah was in an inevitable situation of judgment based upon his terrible leadership. But God is still calling individuals, if you will, through Zephaniah's message. Individuals there in Judah. Zephaniah was the last prophet to Judah. This is now the single kingdom that's left, right? Israel's off the scene. And Zephaniah is the final one before 
the, the, the things shift and Babylon comes in and, and takes them. Zephaniah was likely the great-grandson of previous king by the name of Hezekiah. Again, a king of Judah. He, he may then well have been the cousin of King Josiah. He, he probably had kingly blood in his veins. If you look at the book, it's a short book. There's four parts, at least is how we'll look at it. You can see him there. God's coming wrath on Judah. Then he switches to God's coming wrath on the nations around Judah. He flips back to Judah. And then finally, God's restoration and blessing for Judah and really for other nations as well. So look at chapter 1. First few verses there. Before funneling down to words of, of denunciation on Judah, as you see in the first part, he spends a few verses on the future of other nations, more broadly speaking. He declares that the whole of the inhabited world will face judgment one day. I think actually this is a bit of a theme for Zephaniah. You see it in verse 2 and in verse 3. You see it in verse 18 of chapter 1 and then near the end of the book in verse 8 of chapter 3. There may be others that I didn't write down, but for example, look at verse 18. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. So again and again he brings up this idea that the whole earth will be under God's judgment, not just Judah or Assyria or something like that. By the time you get to verse 4, we're in chapter 1, the focus is obviously now firmly on God's people in Judah. God is a jealous God and his people have practiced syncretism. If you don't know what that is, basically it's joining false worship with the worship of God, with true worship. If you can do that, that's what they've done. And it goes beyond just paying respects to Baal or some other god, right? It, it's a lifestyle. They, they followed those gods. It, it broke their culture and it, it broke the law of God. In verse 7 of chapter 1, the prophet says that the day of the Lord is near. Now, this day of the Lord phrase, in the very most basic sense, it is a time when God intervenes in the world to judge enemies. Zephaniah uses that full phrase seven times in his short book. I would see that some of what he is prophesying in this phrase is having a near fulfillment. In other words, Babylon's right around the corner. They will come and they will conquer Judah in 586 B.C., and then others, as he uses this phrase, the day of the Lord has a farther fulfillment. Judgment on a worldwide scale, yet future. So chapter 1 speaks uh, mainly, mainly to this near fulfillment, the one Babylon on the, on the cusp. For example, look at verse 10, chapter 1. It says, a cry will go up from the fish gate, or maybe you have Damascus gate, that's an actual gate still there, actually. The place, it's in the north of Jerusalem, and that's where Nebuchadnezzar penetrated the city when he came and captured them in 586. We see him finish, Zephaniah, the section on Judah in chapter 2, verse 3, and he tells them here, look at that verse real quickly. We're going to come back to this verse but he says, seek the Lord, you humble or you meek. Perhaps God in his mercy will hide you on this day. Seek the Lord. 
In verse 4 then, he begins the section on judgment to other nations. So he's, he's directed himself, his, his message to Judah. Now there's a section on other nations with judgment on peoples that probably hassled Israel. This is, is God's judgment is coming upon them. Now the, the nations you see here may be emblematic or symbolic of other nations that aren't mentioned. But we notice that all four points of the compass are brought up in the, in the ones mentioned. So in verses 4 through 7, you have Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. Those are four out of the five Philistine cities on Israel's west. By the way, that's the same basic territory that Gaza is in today. Verses 8 and 10 or 8, 9, and 10, would be the east. Moab and Ammon are, are brought up. These are the peoples that descended from Lot and his incestuous relationship with his daughters, also um, many years back, also enemies of Israel. From the east, we move to the south. Verse 12, Ethiopians or Cushites are brought up as God's speaking judgment to these people. And verses 13 through 15 looks to the north, basically. Nineveh, capital of Assyria. Verse 15 pictures the pride and the arrogance of Assyria. And if you remember some of Nahum's last words as he spoke to Assyria's destruction last week, all who hear the news about you, Nahum is saying, that is, all who hear the destruction of your great city, they will clap their hands because of you, for who has not experienced your constant cruelty? And then look at Zephaniah's words in the last part of 2.15. The last part of verse 15. Everyone who passes by her scoffs and shakes his fist. Everyone was happy to see Assyria go. They were not fun for anybody. And remember that prophecy was fulfilled only a few decades later, 612 BC, very shortly after this. Now, all the nations here mentioned, it reminds us that God is sovereign. He has standards, he has ideals for all of his creation, for all nations. He is patient, but he is just. Isaiah says in, in 40 verse 15, as he talks about God, it says, look, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. It's good to keep that in mind. Whatever we face, God is sovereign and God is in control. Well, if you are looking at Zephaniah there, look at chapter 3 now. This is the into the next section. Verses 1 through 7, he focuses on Jerusalem and Judah again. They have been rebellious, stubborn, and foolish, right? We knew that. They didn't learn from the judgment of God on the nations around them, Israel, for example. They refused to listen to the prophets that spoke in their midst. They willingly forgot God's law. They, they did not keep their part of the covenant given to them on Sinai. Remember that covenant given to them on Mount Sinai not that long ago. Moses revisited that covenant multiple times before he died. The covenant was recommitted to by Joshua when Joshua was the leader after Moses. And in the days of Josiah, this period right here with our prophet Zephaniah, that law was forgotten. It was buried in the dust somewhere. It was unknown. 
That's the flavor of the nation. So judgment is coming. Chapter 3, verse 8, as he finishes with Judah, God says, therefore, wait for me. Now, I don't, I don't know exactly who, what's going on, but perhaps this is directed toward the godly, those who feared God in the land. Wait in faith. Well, the transition then is made right there in verse 8, and the prophecy um, is, is now directed toward Israel or Judah and the whole earth. The last part of verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8, all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Again, there's that theme of all the earth. Now, my interpretation is that the rest of the book, the rest of this chapter, speaks to a time yet future. You see in verse 9 that God will purify their lips. He addresses Judah again, and, and maybe this speaks of something like the reversal of the confusion of Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? They all came and God split them up by language because he confused their language. Maybe you see the reversal of that as he says here, with one language, with unity of mind, shoulder to shoulder, they will come in obedience, unlike Babel, to worship the Lord they rejected for so many years. He talks of bringing them back and, and removing the proud from their midst in verses 12 and 13. Instead, it's the humble and the lowly who are on the list and those who seek purity and those who seek peace. Verse three or verse 15 of chapter 3, the Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. What a wonderful statement of forgiveness and restoration there. Restoration seems very obvious in this last part of the chapter. And, and even more than restoration, there's exaltation, there's establishment for Judah like they hadn't ever known. Verse 20, God says through the prophet, At that time I will bring you in, even at, that, at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. All the peoples of the earth will know of this event. That, that's, again, I think my, my interpretation is that this has not happened yet. It will take place with a remnant of God's chosen people, Israel. The humble who call on Yahweh alone as their God and embrace Jesus as Messiah. They haven't done that, really. This will be, it, it appears, a worldwide, known, a world-known event anyhow. And perhaps verse 17, you could just jump back to verse 17 of chapter 3. Perhaps this is sort of a climax of this period that's spoken about. Zephaniah says, the Lord is in your midst, Judah. He will rejoice over you. And, and there's some more wording there. It's a remarkable time. Now, again, there's not agreement among Christians about the meaning, that phrase, the day of the Lord, and that's, that's okay. We work on that. There's a lot in the prophets and other places concerning this day or this period, and maybe we'll talk about it more as we go along, but some of the meanings concerning the day of the Lord here in Zephaniah, they're pretty clearly the judgment, the destruction of Assyria, of Babylon in, in Zephaniah particularly. Some are pretty clearly something else, not that soon destruction. 
And whether that's another event, whether that's allegorical language, in other words, it's not the literal meaning, or whether it is a literal event that's still future, the day of the Lord refers to something. As I would look at it, I would take the literal, the, or as a, I would take the language as normal as possible, and, and it looks to me like some of this prophecy speaks to events yet to come, still future. So you keep working on that. So turn back to chapter 2, verse 3 with me for a minute. Chapter 2, verse 3. The prophet here, of course, God is speaking to Judah. And I think he's speaking to the God-fearers in the land. Verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. So he's speaking to the humble of the land, the earth. The word there, humble, has to do with a lack of pride and arrogance, sincere and straightforward living. His address is, those, is to those who carry out the commands of the Lord, even in a hostile environment. And you, of course, this comes in the midst of heavy judgment, right, and heavy prophecy of things yet to come or even judgment and prophecy events happening as they live you know i think there's mercy here on those who are or those who will seek god it says perhaps you will be hidden on the day of wrath now that by the way is a play on the name of zephaniah his name means the lord will hide it's not a promise of physical deliverance necessarily, but it teaches us that God is eager to save, to be a refuge for those who seek him. God is not indiscriminate. That's something for us to realize or remember. He is not indiscriminate. He didn't, if you think about Noah's flood, by the way, he, he brought those who sought him through the flood didn't he save a few out of Sodom and Gomorrah, those who sought him? And there's lots of other examples. God wants to save. Now, here in this verse, the prophet is directly speaking to the remnant in Judah, but I think his words can challenge us too. Those who are serious about the Lord, those who carry out his commands, seek the Lord. That's an injunction, of course, we find throughout the Bible something we need to take seriously. In 2010, a wealthy New Mexico art dealer, his name was Forrest Fenn, hit a bronze treasure chest with gold coins, gold nuggets, and other goodies estimated to be worth millions of dollars. He hid that somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. He publicized clues to find this treasure chest the clues were written into a 24-line poem that he wrote. The only other hints given by Fenn was that the chest was somewhere between Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the Canadian border <laughs> at an elevation of above 5,000 feet. Well, that still leaves a lot of room. Fenn said the goal was to get people off their couches and away from their screens to take on an adventure. It's the thrill of the chase, not the thrill of the find. It's an adventure to go looking. 
regardless of the argument of some that said it was an elaborated hoax, an estimated 350,000 people spent time seeking the treasure. Many were very dedicated to the point that some lost their lives in the wilds of the mountains. But before you go looking, don't go looking, it was discovered in 2020, 10 years later, after it was hidden. The man who found it dedicated two full years to deciphering the poem and then many weeks tramping around the Rocky Mountains in search of the treasure. I believe there's a book all written about it if you want to know more details. But I think the seeking of the Lord, the seeking of the Lord ought to be something like seeking treasure, right? We, there's, the Bible uses this picture several times. We should be like this guy devoting ourselves to seeking the treasure of the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. We've found him. Yes, he's called us and he's saved us. But if you're a Christian, you're just getting started seeking the treasure. It's just the beginning. So the basics are, I want to think about the basics. What does it mean to seek the Lord? I think you probably know. Let me remind you. If you don't know, good. Good time to learn. I think first it has to do with our value systems, our perspective. In other words, we have to choose. We have to commit to seeking the Lord as valuable. We choose it. We commit to it. It's a good thing. It's, in fact, a necessary thing. It's something I want to give my life to. It's a priority for me. Psalm 14, 2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there, if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. So do you believe that? Is it wise to seek God? The Lord's looking down to see who's wise. You see Zephaniah in, in his prophecy here declared that most of Judah is the opposite of this. Look at chapter 3, first couple of verses. I think J.D. read these for us. It says, Woe to that city that is rebellious and defiant, the oppressive city. She has not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. As believers, we can go down that road too. Don't be deceived. We too cannot trust, not draw near, not seek the Lord. King David end of his life he passed off the kingdom to his son Solomon you remember that and this is what he told Solomon his son now determine in your mind and your heart to seek the Lord your God you see there it's it's a necessity of us to previously determine to commit that doesn't mean we don't revisit it often but we Make a decision. I will seek the Lord. The Bible says many times something along the lines of what David wrote that later in Psalm 105. It says, boast in, the, boast in his holy name, that is God's holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. So this is where joy and fulfillment is found, if you can believe that. The man who found the bronze che treasure chest in the Rocky Mountains he has now faced legal suits, personal security issues, attacks and unhappiness from those who didn't find it. But seeking the Lord is where joy and fulfillment are found. So then secondly, seeking the Lord has to do with our practice. Seeking treasure 
has to do with disciplines in your daily life. Now, I don't know, but I'm quite sure that sometimes you don't feel like seeking the Lord. I don't always. Maybe intellectually, but practically, it's not the natural course for us. In the flesh, no one is born wanting to seek the Lord. We want to seek ourselves. But the discipline that you place upon yourself will increase your desire and your passion for that treasure, that treasure of God. Self-discipline is necessary. It's really where the rubber meets the road. A lot of this, you could say, has to do with those things often called spiritual disciplines that you incorporate into your life. They become the core to your existence. You know, consistent Bible reading, consistent prayer, that, that's our, our life with God, hearing from Him, communicating to Him. We're talking about meeting together in Christian fellowship, about confession of sin and accountability, and you can add to that list. You, you know those sorts of things. Colossians 3.1, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In, in verse 3 there, Zephaniah says, seek righteousness, seek humility. That's the treasure. So as we learn and grow in wisdom, it will change us and the way we live. It wasn't that long ago but before... Um, Zephaniah's time the kingdom under, after Solomon split in two you remember north and south in 2nd Chronicles 11 evil king Jeroboam went to the north and to keep his kingdom safe to have security up there he set up high places of worship in the north he didn't want anybody going down south and getting distracted and say, staying in that kingdom but God that was not his design for high places of worship set up in the, in the north of the land. And in this passage here, it talks about some from every tribe in the north that went to Jerusalem as God had directed to worship. And it says about these that they had determined in their hearts to seek the Lord their God. They took the words of David. They determined. And then they took action, even though it was maybe not popular and even dangerous so we let God's wisdom that wisdom that we find as we seek him that wisdom governs our lives our words our thoughts our responses our intentions you know do you want confidence and courage to live rightly do you want wisdom and decision making do you want the ability to respond well and to have security and wholeness and joy, these come to the one who seeks the Lord diligently, the treasure of the Lord. So don't let it gather dust like Judah did, sitting in the corner somewhere in the temple, but seek the Lord. I'm looking forward to celebrating communion together with you here this morning. You know, the scripture says that Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. That's to those who are in Christ. And, you know, thank God by His grace in saving us, we have been given the opportunity to seek the Lord. Not everyone has. So 
if the servers and, and the musician and Chris, you guys would just come up, please. And I just invite you at this time to, to put aside your notes and your Bibles and your coloring pages. And um, let's just come to this ordinance, this remembrance with seriousness. This is a time of solemnity as we remember. And I encourage you to search your hearts. Just take a moment with me. Let's search our hearts and maybe there's some issues there that we need to deal with before God, some sin that we can confess and we want to have a clear relationship with the Lord as we take this serious time. It's a special time of worship is what it is and we want to do it together. So take a moment with me. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace and your mercy extended to us. I just pray as we take these elements now that you would meet us and that we would grow in faith. Thank you that you reach your hand into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Men, would you serve the bread, please? in your hand hopefully a small piece of bread that's all it is but as Jesus picked up the loaf and broke it it was there as a reminder it was a piece of bread for them too that first time but it was a reminder of what his body that was soon to be broken in punishment for us let's partake together in remembrance of that Men, would you serve the juice, please?
again a small cup of juice. And yet, when Christ picked up the cup, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And I think he spoke to his blood that was to be shed shortly, only a few hours later. And again, shed willingly because he loved us. And he knew that that wrath of God, the punishment had to be taken somewhere. And he willingly took that upon himself that we wouldn't have to. Thank you, Lord. Let's partake together. Father, we do just come with grateful hearts. We're a small contingent of the the throng of Christians who have walked the earth over the years, God-fearers in the land, and yet you care for each one of us. And you've called us into your family individually. And you call us by your name because you love us so deeply. You planned, I believe, before even creation that you would come and give your life, that we would have eternal life and relationship and and feel your love and not your wrath. Just grateful for your continued faithfulness in our lives, even now. We ask it in Jesus' name.